The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have imparted it to us, Lord. And so help us to come with open hearts. Help us to to lay aside the distractions, the circumstances, and let us to simply come and to hear, Lord. To, to hear that we wouldn't just understand, but that we would apply and that we would be doers of your word. And so help us, Lord, help us to be faithful hearers, Lord. Um, we need you, and so Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. We ask that your presence would be felt and that you would make, uh, help us to, to see Jesus and his glory and his beauty uh, through your word. Ask that you would make it understandable for us. We love you. It's in here we pray. Amen. Awesome. Well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. How you doing? Doing all right? All right. Uh, so we are continuing on in 1 John. Uh, really excited. 1 John is one of my favorite books. Uh, and so one of the, the biggest themes of 1 John is that he is he's aiming to make it crystal clear what it means to follow Christ and what it doesn't. And so if you know anything about John, he is very black and white. He's very uh, clear. He doesn't deal with uh, doctrinal uncertainty. Instead, he is, he's coming to press home the fundamentals of the faith. Here is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so you don't see a lot of gray area in John. He doesn't deal with, uh, with opinions. He doesn't deal with you know, gray areas. Instead, he deals with the things that are either black or white, either truth or false, either walking the light or the darkness. And so um, John is writing uh, this book. We don't know the exact place or people. You know, a lot of people say it's Ephesus uh, because he spent a lot of time there, but it doesn't say to the people at Ephesus. And so it's just through church history that we kind of deduce that it's probably to Ephesus. And I think it's really interesting uh, because... Years earlier, Paul is at Ephesus, and he is leaving the church, and he writes this in Acts 20. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul said this, and in 20, 30 years, we see John writing again to the church because of what Paul had spoke had happened, is that there were fierce wolves that had risen among them and were seeking to lead people astray, seeking to speak perverse and false and, and untrue things about Christ. And so John writes to bring clarity about what does it look like, what does it mean, how can we know if we are followers of Christ? And so far, we've seen it. He lays a couple tests, right? He lays a couple tests so that we would know. The first one that we've seen is moral is that he says that there should be a change in us. There should be something different. Uh, he says that we should be walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. First John 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And so one of the ways that we know that we're Christians is that there's actually been a change in our life, is that we, we desire to pursue Christ. We desire holiness. We want that. That's not something just an add-on, but that's something that we see that it has changed our life. And what that, what that means is it means that we confess our sin, is that we don't hide our sin, we don't put a mask on, but that we're transparent, we're open. That's what it means to walk in the light, 
is it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that we are transparent. We live a life of openness because we have been forgiven, because our sin no longer is what enslaves us or captures us, but instead it's Christ's grace. And so there, that's, that's the first test that he says. If, you, if you've been born again, that life is going to show itself in you. You're going to have a, new, a newfound love for the Lord, and it's going to manifest itself in, in desire for holiness and pursuing purity. The second thing is we see is that there's a social test, is that we love God and that we love one another. 1 John 2, 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And so he says, you, you can't call yourself a Christian while you're hating God's people. You, you can't call yourself a Christian if you, and, and we talked about before that it's ironic that people say, well, I love Jesus, but I never want anything to do with his people. You know, and, and John here says, you can't do that. Jesus is one with his people and how you treat the church is a reflection of how you are treating Christ. We like, to, we like to split that and say, I'll treat Christ this way, but I'll treat the church another way. And Jesus says, you can't. I am, I, how, how you treat others is a reflection of how you are treating me. And so he says, you can't claim to walk in light and hate your brother at the same time. It's not true. And today he lays a third test, and this one is, is doctrinal. As he says that there are certain things that you, you have to believe if you are to be a follower of Christ. There are lots of people that proclaim to be a Christian, but John is going to say, listen, not everybody who says that they are a Christian is in fact a Christian. He says there are certain things of, of what it means to be a follower of Christ, and so he's going to talk about those, uh, the doctrinal test. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We're going to be in 1 John 2, verses 18 through 27. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is God's word. So the big idea that's going to guide our time is that Christ's anointing teaches us the truth and protects us from deception. Christ's anointing teaches us the truth and protects us from deception. We must abide in the truth. Our, our role is that we must abide in the truth. And so we'll see three things. First, uh, he, in verses 18 through 21, he talks about the difference between true and false believers. And then the second thing is that in verses 20 through, 22 through 23, he talks about the lie of all lies, the biggest lie of all. And so, and then third, uh, he talks about how is it that we're protected from deception, the protection from deception. And so, first, true and false believers. Our expectations in this life set our reality. 
what you expect you're going to face, it impacts how you approach it. You know, if you think that this life is never going to have any problems, then you're going to be very frustrated when life gives you a different picture, <laughs> right? You're going to get very angry, very upset. If you think that marriage is, you know, all roses and walks on the beach, then guess what? There are going to be times where you're going to be sorely disappointed, you know? And so, <laughs> so, so our expectations, our expectations about the circumstances that we're facing, they, they help set precedence for our approach to it. And if, if we think that in our relationship with Christ that we're not going to have things that are going to disappoint us, that are, are going to affect us, if we think that we are going to be free of, of hurdles and obstacles, and even people that we love that have, have left the faith, then we're going to be disappointed. And this is what John's wanting to do. Is John's wanting to set our expectations about the life that we're entering when we follow Christ. That there are going to be people that we love dearly that are going to... Unfortunately, they were not of us, that they're going to depart. And he says, I want you to have expectations that are, that are appropriate. I want you to know that even Christ had people that left him. Even as he was following, fulfilled God's will perfectly, and he had someone that betrayed him. And so he wants to set our expectations. He wants to, he wants to remind us that there's a truth, that there are people that claim Christ that are not true believers. And in Matthew 13, Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the, of the, the wheat and the tares, and he says that, that he, God went and, and sowed, there's a farmer, and he sowed seed in, in the field, and it was good seed. And it, it's growing up, but yet there was an enemy that came up amongst it and threw bad seed in it, and it started to grow up weeds or tares, and tares look very much like wheat. And so the, the worker said, well, let us go and let us just cut it out. And he says, no, wait, because you might, in trying to take up the wheat, or the weeds, you might take up the wheat. And he says, let it grow, and at the end of the age, they will be cut down, and the good will be put with, with, in the farm, in the storehouse, and the bad will be thrown out. And what he says there is Jesus is telling us that there's a reality that even in the visible church, because there's the visible church, even those that gather together on Sunday morning, there's a reality of those that actually know Christ and those that don't. And we don't see the beginning from the end. We don't see where people are really at. He says that there's the, the visible church, but there's the invisible church. There are those that God truly knows that are, are truly known by him and, are, and love him and walk with him. And this is what he says here is that there is there's a, a reality in that in this church and that there were people that left, that they lived a long time with, with them and that they departed from the faith. And he, he sets their expectations of it. And he says, how, how do we know? We should know that this is coming. Why? Because it's the last hour. And he says, during the last hour, Things like this are going to happen. People are going to depart. That people are going to leave. People are going to denounce Christ. They're going to, to change things to fit what their itching ears want to hear. Now, we kind of approach that. We hear last hour. Like, it's been a long last hour. I mean, you know, it's been 2,000 years, and we're kind of like, that's a very, very long hour. And part of it is that we need to understand how the Bible approaches this, this idea of the last hour. In the Old Testament, it says that, that when the Messiah comes, it will be the last of days. It will, it will signify that things are coming. The old era is past, and there's a new era that has come, a new age that has dawned. And so we see that in the Old Testament. The New Testament affirms that all the time. You see it in Acts 2, 16 through 17. It says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, the Old Testament stories were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, in many ways, in many and various ways, God spoke 
of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. Hebrews 9.28, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in 1 Peter 1.20, Christ was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of the times for your sake. You know, sometimes we, we hear that and we think end of times, and, and the, the biblical writers have this understanding that though Christ hasn't returned yet, that it is still in the end of the ages. And that there's going to be a time where it is the literal final hour. But when he's talking about the final hour, he's talking about that, this, that because of Christ's death and because of his resurrection, the old age is passing away and the new age is coming in. That the reality of, of his kingship is closer today than it has ever been before. That it's continuing to make progress and it's continuing to move forth. Now, how do we, how do we approach this, right? Why, you know, I mean, for me, the, the question is, why, Lord? You know, I mean, 2,000 years, why not, you know, why not sooner? And so we can, uh, we can approach this, but we can, we can approach this with cynicism or we can approach this in a, in a posture of faith. In a posture of saying, I want to I hear what you have to say about this, God. What do you, why, what is your heart behind this? Well, one of the reasons is that we know that Christ and his mission must spread to the whole, the whole globe. In Revelation, we see that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be before the Father, will be singing his praises and giving him glory. And so we know that God's patience is that people would know him, is that the gospel might spread to still tongues and still tribes that have not heard of him. And so we know that he's patient, longing for people to come. And this is what we see. And, and, and also, God's time frame is a little different than ours. He's outside of time. And we can't really fathom that because we're so bound in it. But 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And then verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so my hope is that we don't approach this question with cynicism, but we approach it with, with faith and with gratefulness. Because all of us here and our relationship with the Lord is due because of his patience. God was patient towards us, desiring that we would come to know him. And so too, God is patient, desiring that others would come to know him. And God's timing is not our timing. Amen, right? I mean, anybody feel that in your life? You're like, there's some things that I wish would have been done a long time ago, but God is patient, and it, in hindsight, it's far better. Hindsight is 2020, but yet we're still looking forward and we're still wondering but we do that in a posture of faith and of trust, knowing God's character, knowing that he has a plan, that he is working together for good. But he says that we know it's the last hour. How do we know it's the last hour, John? Well, we know it's the last hour, he says, because antichrists have come. Now, this is where I'm thankful that we do expository preaching. Why am I thankful for that? Because I would never like pick a topic and be like, you know, I'm going to preach on Antichrist for a topical sermon. Like that just isn't my, my bent. But we're, we seek to be faithful to the scriptures. And so as the scriptures teach it, we preach it. And so the, the scriptures talk about this figure of the Antichrist. And there's two things. One, this word anti, it can mean two things. One, it can mean literally I'm against or I'm opposing you. You know, and so the, the Antichrist is one that opposes Christ. It opposes his purposes. It opposes his plans. It is out to, 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 to lead that astray. But another more subtle meaning of Antichrist is it means to supplement Christ. It means to 
to substitute Christ for another Christ, for another teaching, for another way. And so there's two ways that we see that the, the movement of the Antichrist comes. One is sometimes it's in direct opposition, but most of the time it's more subtle. It's more in substitution where it seeks to exchange something for something else. And this is what we see here. As he says that there's, there's an Antichrist, but he says also they're Antichrist, plural. You know, and that's kind of confusing. We're like, what, what are we talking about? Well, the Bible makes clear that there in the future, there will be a literal Antichrist figure. And what that means is, it means that there's going to be, Revelation makes clear that there's going to be a person that embodies these characteristics of opposing Christ, of, of seeking to exalt himself. Paul talks about it as this abomination of desolation that's going to sit in the temple and, and try to proclaim himself equal with God that he's going to rise up against God and try to take his glory and his throne from him. But Paul says, listen, before that, there's what's called the spirit of the Antichrist, this theme, this rebellion against God and his authority. It's already spreading. And he says, this spirit of the Antichrist is making itself manifest. It's making itself known even now. And this is how we know that it's the last hour is because of these things. So, How do we know if someone is a Christian? Right, we've talked about some of the tests, but John here talks about another one. He's, you know, it, someone professes Christ. Well, yeah, that's a pretty good idea, you know? Yes, I mean, professing Jesus is a pretty good indicator that someone would follow Christ. But there are plenty of people that profess Christ but aren't. You know, having a love for others is a pretty good mark. Yeah, absolutely, it is a good mark, you know? And, and if you don't love other people, good chances that you haven't received the love of God. But he also talks about that one of the marks is, is continuing in the faith. It's this idea of perseverance. We see, he says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I think we can see two things here. First, John's dealing with a church split, right? What's going on in this situation is that he has a large group of his church that have abandoned the faith. They've left because they are enticed by what's called Gnosticism. And so what he's saying is he's saying that in this, it's actually not a bad thing because it's clarifying. It's making known, it's disclosing something that was hidden before. And so while he longs for their restoration, he longs for them to come back to the faith he says, that they were, he says that they never really belonged. They never truly knew Christ. And so he's saying that what it is, is it's disclosing before the time. And so he says, listen, we, church unity is something Christ died for. Christ died that we would be one. But oneness doesn't come at the expense of truth. And listen, this isn't truth about trivial matters, right? It's not truth about, you know, eschatology and what you think about the end times, right? It's, it's truth about who Jesus is and about the nature of what he's done for us. Now listen, there are many people that would claim Christ, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, even prosperity gospel preachers, and we would say, listen, we love you, but we are not one with you. We care for you and we will serve you, but we are not in fellowship with you. Why? Because there is no oneness when you have a different Christ. When you, when you reject, I mean, as Mormons, Mormons deny the Trinity. They, they say that God is not three in one. They, they supplement, they say that you are not saved by faith and grace alone. 
And so when the nature of salvation, the person of Jesus, then you're not worshiping or fellowshipping around the same thing. You have a different Jesus and a different salvation, and therefore I love you and I care for you, and I will seek to, to share the gospel with you, but we are not in fellowship. We're not brothers in Christ. And there's no unity there. Instead, there's damage. Same thing with Jehovah Witnesses. I love, I love Jehovah Witnesses, but they deny the full deity of Christ. And therefore, if Jesus isn't fully divine, then he could not have carried the weight of our sin. And therefore, we do not have salvation. We are not saved from our sin. And so while I love them, while I care for them, we are not, we are not one. Prosperity gospel teachers, Joel Osteen, this is gonna tell you a lot of nice things that flatter your ears and make you feel warm inside. But listen, he's not gonna tell you that what, what you desperately need is forgiveness of your sin. That your sin stands in the way between you and God. And that you desperately need God's grace to come and rescue you. And so therefore, while we pray for him and while we love them, we are not one with them. And this is what he says. Is it says that they, they went out from us that it might be made known that they were always that way. And the, the second thing we learn is that the mark of a true Christian is perseverance. John says that, that we will continue on in the faith. That we are, if we are born again, that's going to continue. That identity, that marker, it doesn't, listen, perseverance doesn't mean that you don't have times of struggle. It doesn't mean that there aren't times where you, you fade away, that you have a rough spot. But what it means is, is it means that you will ultimately be drawn back, is that you will continue in your faith. And this is one of the hallmarks of what it means to, to follow Christ, is he who perseveres to the end, that is the one that reveals that they are saved, that they truly know the Lord. Christianity is a race. It's a marathon. And it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. It's about how you complete the race. Now, you see later on, John's contrasting. He moves on after this, and he contrasts those that remain with those that have left. Because those that left, they are flaunting it in the, the, those that have remained. They're saying, listen, you're, you're in the old times. We have... What's in Gnosticism, they would have had what's called a secret knowledge. They would have had a ceremony where they would have been anointed and they would have been given secret insider knowledge. Uh, I, I, I really think it's akin to Scientology. <laughs> you know, is that you, you know, Emily uh, has a lot of people that come and that are Scientologists and we were talking about the other day, of like, why do you think that like people are in Scientology, especially if they don't have a lot of money? You know, I mean, like Scientology is, I feel like is a, a belief system for the really wealthy and, and status. And I think that one of the reasons that people approach it like that is because they want to feel like they belong. They want to feel status, that I know somebody, that I'm a part of something. And so, yeah, and that's what Gnosticism was, is it gave this kind of insider feel, is that we're this secretive group and you can come and be a part of us. And we have this secret knowledge and we've been anointed and you guys, you haven't. You, you're not really insiders. You don't really know. And John is writing to totally contradict that. And he says, who anointed, like who, who anointed them? You've been anointed by the Holy One, right? You've been anointed by Christ through his spirit. You have, they have knowledge. You have true knowledge and it's demonstrated in your perseverance. It's demonstrated in your life. Not because you joined a fad and because you were given this initiation right. It says you have, you have true knowledge and that knowledge teaches you the truth, right? It teaches you the truth about everything. And listen, it's not saying that you can show up to your calculus four test and all of a sudden you're saying, it's gonna teach me everything. Lord, download it into my mind. No, what it's saying is that it's going to teach you everything you need to know about what it means to be saved and to walk in obedience to Christ. Is the Holy Spirit teaches us and leads us and guides us. 
And so we know that we are in the truth because the Holy Spirit has anointed us and because he teaches us, he leads us and guides us. Now the second thing that John moves on to in verses 22 to 23 is he talks about the lie of all lies. So there are lies and then there are lies, right? I mean, you guys know the difference, right? I mean, there's like a little white lie you kind of slide in and then there are lies that if you were found out, oh my gosh, you know, like, I mean, I remember a couple of lies as, as a child, and I learned very quickly that lying is not the best way, that it's better to tell on yourself than to be found out. You know, at least in my household, I would get, I would get whipped, you know, like lovingly, caringly whipped, you know, like I get a spank on because my parents love me enough to tell me, you know, that reality is going to catch up with you and it's going to hurt. Uh, and so lies, lies are, depending upon the magnitude that you are lying, is going to depend upon the consequence, right? It, Anybody ever seen Liar, Liar, right? The movie with Jim Carrey. I mean, hilarious, you know, hilarious movie. But you see it. Lies multiply themselves, don't they? I mean, once you make one lie, you can't stop there. Like, you have to lie about the lie. And then you have to lie about the lie about the lie. And all of a sudden, you're in a web, and the web is going to catch you. You know, ultimately, reality is going to come falling upon your head, and you're going to be stuck. And the more important the reality is that you lie about, the, the greater the damage the greater the, the ruin. And so John here, he says, the lie above all lies, the lie that is the most damaging and most damning is the lie about Christ. As he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist that says that, that Jesus has not come in the flesh, that he is not truly Messiah. And why is this the lie of, of all lies? It's the lie above all lies because it is the one that is the biggest reality. It, it deceives on the greatest reality because listen, what you believe about Christ affects everything in your life. It is more important than your marriage. Your, your faith in Christ and what you think about Christ has more implications in every other realm. It affects your purpose. It affects your work. It affects every relationship you have. It affects how you are changed, what you do with the evil that is inside of you. And so when you lie, when, you, when there's a lie about Christ, its implications and its ramifications spread across every facet of your life like nothing else can. And, and this lie, it comes from the evil one. And we see in John 8, it says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so this lie is the most damaging. What do, you, what do you think about Christ? Who do you say that he is? Because here's the, the uniqueness about Christianity is that Christianity doesn't claim to be a matter of opinion or a matter of, you know, just you believe this and I'll believe this. Christianity makes a fact statement. It is either historically true or it is not. You can't have it either or. You can't say, well, you know, I just happen to want to believe it, but you can disagree. It says it's, listen, it's all or nothing. Either Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the dead or he didn't. And if he did, everything is different. Everything in your life changes. But if he didn't, then I'm not going to give my life to that. I'm not going to waste any time on that. But he did. And so, man, press into that. I love what Marty said up here is it seek out the truth. If you really earnestly seek out the truth, you will find the truth and it will change your life. And that's what led me, to, is that I wanted to seek out, man, is Christ who he said he is? Is this worth giving my life for? Is this worth investing my time into? 
Seek it out. Don't be half-hearted about it. Don't be lazy about it. Seek the truth out wholeheartedly because you will find it. And when you do that, it will change you. It will change you. And what is the lie that they're saying? The lie that they're saying is they're saying that Jesus is the Messiah. They're saying, listen, I can have God the Father without God the Son. I mean, I just had a, a, a person, an acquaintance that I knew recently that, that did that, that, you know, was on the, uh, the you know, circumference of the fellowship and like, and left. And now he, he denies the son, denies the son and thinks that I can have God without Jesus. And this is what, this is exactly what he says. Listen, they're a package deal. You don't have the father without the son. And you don't get the son if you say that there is no father, is that they come together. And this is what you see. Jesus says this. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And so you see the father's work is that the father draws people to the son. The father's not in opposition to the son. The father's supporting the son, hoisting up the son, drawing people into Jesus. And you see Jesus, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the pathway to the Father. He discloses the Father, makes him known, displays his character. And so the biggest lie is that we can have one without the other. They come together. You want to see who the Father is, you look at the Son. Now, this lie is so damaging and and. Some people might say, well, how do people lie about this? How do people, you know, some people, don't people just not know? Isn't it just a genuine mistake? Now, I think this is where Romans 1 comes in for me. Romans 1 talks about that we suppress the knowledge of God. That, that somewhere deep inside of us, we know the reality that there is a creator that made us. And we know that, that we were made to be loved and to love. We can't deny these realities. They're fundamental. They operate in our relationships. We know that loving people is the most fundamental reality. But why? Why? Why is that the truth? Why is it that we believe objectively that, that there are things that are right and wrong? That it, it's not a matter of opinion. That you shouldn't go and slaughter a race. That that is objectively wrong. It's not just my subjective opinion on the matter. We believe that, that there is meaning in our life, that there is purpose. We believe that. We live our life like that. Why is it that we believe those things? We believe those things because those directly flow from a relationship with God, knowing that God exists. And so what often we do is that we believe those things, but yet we try to reject God. And we try to say, well, I'll hold on to the objective morality. I'll hold on to trying to you know, think that life is about love, but yet I deny the source. And so... We, we all believe and we all know somewhere in us that, that there is a God, that he does know us and love us and that we push that, reject that way. And listen, there are people that have more clarity about that than others. There are people where that is, that is hidden inside of them and that there, there's, they, they know it, they're still suppressing it, but there are others like what John is talking about where it's clear as day, they know it very obviously and they're intentionally suppressing that because they don't want it to be true. They don't want to honor God. They don't want to submit to God. And so, how are we protected from this deception? How are we protected from the lie? Because it's easy to be deceived. Have, have you ever been deceived? Anybody ever been deceived before? Right? 
I mean, I, I've been gullible and I have been deceived before, right? I mean, I remember I was on my Mac and all of a sudden I had this thing pop up and it was like, you must call this number, you know, if you want to get out, you know, like Peter freezes and I'm sitting here, gullible fool, call the number, realizes, hey, I'm actually getting put, you know, they're, they're hacking into my computer. Gave them access and all that stuff. It's easy to be, it's easy to be, I had to go get my whole computer like wiped clean, all of that stuff. It's easy, it's easy to be deceived. It's easy to be seen, especially when you have a lot of people around you that do the same thing, right? When you go with the crowd, who you hang with has a big impact on you. It's easy to be seen when those that you care about are living a different way or suppose or say different things. And so he says, listen, how are we protected from deception? Because it's all around us. Just because a lot of people are doing it doesn't mean it's true. Just because people that you care about say that doesn't mean that it's true. And so how is it that we are protected from, from deception? I think he says two things. He says, first, that we are to abide in the gospel. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, and you abide in it, and this is what's going to keep you. And the second thing is that he says, the abiding, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. These are the two things. Now, this idea of abiding, it's huge for John. And what it means to abide is it, it means to stay at home. It means to keep going. It means to remain in. And he says, remain in what you've heard from the beginning. You've been given a deposit. You've been entrusted the gospel. And he says, don't, don't change it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Be faithful to it. Remain, remain in it. And what does this mean? It means that we believe that Christ died for our sin, that he was fully God and fully man, that he was buried, that he physically rose again from the dead, that we believe what the scriptures teach, that it's our authority and our foundation, that we hold fast to this, that as culture changes, we base our beliefs not on the, the sifting sands of culture, but we base it based upon what the scriptures teach. We hold fast to this, no matter what people think about us, because we care more about what Christ thinks of us, what he will say, because the homecoming that we are, we are longing for, that we are going for is better than this. This is not our home. And so he says this, and he says that ultimately it's not, it's not our strength either, that God's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation, and he is the one that keeps us in the faith. John 14, 26, this is, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this is what John means when he says it that you have an anointing from the Holy One and you don't need anyone to teach you for he teaches you of all things. Right, some people twist this verse and they think, well, listen, I don't ever need a teacher. Isn't it ironic that John is teaching them, right? I mean, he's the one teaching them, telling them this. And so he's not saying you don't ever need a teacher. What he's telling them is he's telling them the ultimate teacher is the Holy Spirit. The ultimate teacher is, is God who's come to dwell within us and he is the one that teaches us and reveals to us the truth. He's the one that is appointed teachers. And those teachers are only as good as their faithfulness to his word. And when they step out of those bounds, they are no longer suitable to be teachers. The Holy Spirit is the one that guides and instructs and teaches. He's the one that makes his word known. And so he is the ultimate teacher that we abide in and that we hold fast to. In John 14, 16, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And the Holy Spirit never leaves us. He never departs from us. He lives inside of us, and he teaches us. I'm thankful for this. I've 
I like to think of the, the Christian faith as a, as a race. I ran track in uh, high school and in college, and um, I loved sprints, and then uh, I wasn't fast enough, and so they put me in mid-distance. Um, and, uh, and then that forced me eventually to have to run. I ran mid-distance for races, but you have to run long distance to train for mid-distance. It didn't make sense to me, but they told me I had to do it. So we would have to go out, and you know, I would run the 400, the 800, and the mile, and, uh, and so for that, you know, we would go out and there were weeks where I would put, you know, 50, 60 miles on my legs. And I'm like, this is dumb. How am I putting more legs, more miles on my legs than my car? You know, and so you would just go and you would run. But, you know, we learned about, what I learned about running is that it's not as important about how you started. You, starting's important, but it's really about how you finish. And so especially in the mid-distance is that, you know, you would start out, but you would want to be, you know, about mid you know, pack, and you'd want to save that kick towards the end. You want to make sure that you had enough energy and you had enough stamina left to where everybody else, when they're petering out, you can kick it forward and you can pass. And so it's about, man, the Christian faith, is, it's about how we finish. It's about how we continue on. And this is, listen to what Paul says here. He says, for the time is coming, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 8, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Do you hear what Paul says? And this is the same thing that John is saying, is he is saying that we continue in the faith, is that we persevere, we run the race with faithfulness. Is that we don't, we don't try to break off from the path and create our own way. Instead, we, we say there have been faithful witnesses that have, have run this path before us and we will follow in their footsteps faithfully because we know that this is what Christ calls for us. And because the reward of that is greater than any reward here, right? The reward of, of being faithful to Christ is better than any reward that you could achieve in this world, in this life. And this is what he promises. He says the promise that God has for us is eternal life. And that word eternal doesn't just mean longevity. This doesn't mean that we'll live forever, although that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I'll take that. Like, I, you know, living forever, not a bad thing. But he says the quality of life is also different. Eternal, like I don't know it means that we have a different kind of life. And that it's this reward of, of persevering, of abiding with Christ. And so my encouragement with, to you, my, my application for you is, what does it look like for you to persevere in the faith? What does it look like for you to be faithful to Christ in the midst of situations that might be difficult? In the midst of times that, that, that might, you know, or to, to persevere in the midst of relationships around you. To not give up on the people and to love them, to care for them. And so as we close in prayer, that's, that's just my, my encouragement for you is what does it look like to be faithful to the gospel that God has given to you? What does it look like to be faithful to the people in your life to persevere as God persevered for us? Let us love, let us pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. I pray that uh, you would help it to sink into our lives and I pray that, uh, that you would help us to walk um, Walk with faith, Lord, this path of life you've given to us. Lord, we don't know what's coming in front of us, um, but you do. 
And so we just want to, we want to please you, God, knowing that you have set before us, Lord, uh, an eternal crown of righteousness, Lord, Lord, for those that that are faithful to you, those that walk that out. And so help us, God, help us to to walk that out. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.